0: Welcome to the Live Curiously podcast from Joyce. I'm Tiffany Godoy. I'm a fashion journalist and consultant, and the curiosity that fuels my work also fuels my life. It's taken me from my native Los Angeles to two decades in Tokyo, now to Paris and countless airplanes to document fashion culture's most provocative players. On the second season, we focus on living connected. I'll share conversations I have around the world with some of the most creative minds in fashion, music, and media today. We'll find out how they stay connected with themselves and others at a time when it's so easy to become desensitized. Designer Greg Lauren wears his legacy very well. His father, Jerry Lauren, brother of Ralph Lauren, was co-architect of the brand, working side by side for 40 years. Greg was the brand's poster boy. He played the part completely, dressing like a silver screen god, an Ivy League ace, or a polo-playing dreamboat, until he decided to turn that all-American fantasy on its head. After working as a fine artist, in 2009 he faced his demons and his passions and decided to go into the rag trade too, but solo and self-taught. At first repurposing stained painted canvas from his studio floor, he learned construction by deconstructing garments. This became a signature aesthetic. Lauren championed the artisanal and upcycling over a decade ago. If the Lauren family design heritage is about male archetypes of a bygone era, Greg's obsession is what lurks in the shadows of the male psyche. The damaged souls, imperfect, fallen heroes. His cast of characters are sartorial nomads, hybrid surf warriors, and urban cowboys. I met the designer at his Hollywood atelier. The sunshine outside matches Greg Lauren's charismatic presence. He's got movie star looks too. He used to be an actor, you know. His personal space is a reflection of his patchwork clothing. Collections of stuff abound. Images of Robert Redford cover one wall. Fabrics are scattered in organized piles. From the ground floor below us, the sound of sewing machines. The entire scene is a work in progress that never seems to end. Welcome to Greg Lauren's World.
1: So I'm going to jump around a little yeah. bit. I'm going to ask you about your family. Just two questions.
2: Of course. Okay. It's important. Yeah. It's...
1: Well, fashion is obviously in your blood. What is the first thing you ever designed?
2: God, Well, Wow. As a child, I constantly drew on T-shirts. I was always drawing on T-shirts. That, that has been something I've been doing from the very beginning of my creative career. As and, a
1: child? As a
2: child. <laughs> six as a child. As a, as a six-year-old designer, I started with drawings, <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't say this, but I was doing teddy bears on t-shirts for a long time. But no, no. My background as an artist has always been about drawing. And and so that's something that has stuck with me from the beginning of my creative life all the way through t-shirts and product that we're doing right now. There's always some evidence and some connection to the sketchbook aesthetic whether I'm taking sketches that I have done in my journals and sketchbooks I'm now on my iPad, I love using those. And I love finding old things and things I've written. And I love old handwriting, particularly on my own, um, and mixing that with new drawings and intentional you know, icons and things like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, definitely a drawn T-shirt.
1: You studied art at Princeton.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what did you study there and how did you decide to go into fine art?
2: My journey through my education and how I ended up into my career is really synonymous with the work I do because first of all I've been drawing and making art my entire life so being an artist even though I love so many different things it's always something that came somewhat naturally to me it's something I worked at it's something that I was always drawing always drawing in my sketchbook as long as I can remember so going to Princeton was really a product of an idea. And I can say that now because it was an amazing education. Princeton is a fantastic school. I can honestly say that when I was in high school and looking at schools, I was looking at schools that I saw myself going to. And just like the world that I'd grown up around visually, the world and the lifestyle and the imagery that had been shown to me about these generations of families that went to prep schools, that went to universities on the, on the East Coast in the United States, that became part of my own aspiration as well at that time. I thought, I have to go here. But I said that because I felt like I would look great here. I would feel great here. I was imagining the clothing that I would be wearing here. The, the idea of it was more powerful than the reality. The truth is it was a bit of an identity crisis because the artist in me was simmering and brewing, and I knew that I wanted to do something and would do something creative, but found myself at a school not known for that, certainly when I went there. So it was an interesting contradiction. I ended up actually being an art history major, still because I couldn't let go of this idea. You know, I grew up with image and style being, it defined your identity. And I was comfortable with that growing up because I didn't know anything else and I was able to play that part. And I was, everything I saw as a child was seen through the lens of image and style and the appreciation of that image and style. So it wasn't that it was superficial in the typical sense because with each image, with each movie star, with each world, every photograph that I was shown there was a genuine appreciation for it when I saw the harsh portrait of Ernest Hemingway. One of the first things I ever saw, I looked at that with my father and appreciated everything about him and what he stood for and the craftsmanship of that hand-knit fisherman sweater that he wore. But no one explained to me that he was a writer.
1: Oh, it's like detached from reality in a way. Yeah. Or um, removed from context.
2: Yeah, I think that... I have the distance and the generational space, if that makes sense, to kind of look at what my uncle and my dad experienced. They were from a generation where heroes really existed in the sense that we endowed people with heroic qualities and people could be heroes and they could be what we wanted them to be because we didn't know enough about them at that time. I started to look at that and question wait a minute, it's a beautiful world, but it's a beautiful world that where There's no pain. Nothing negative coexists with this beauty. And so out of context, it seemed like a very artificial life that for me, I started to feel like, wait, I've got to scratch beneath the surface. I've got to see. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't resonate with me. I grew up with a different set of heroes that were usually broken or flawed.
1: Right. So you talk about imperfection. I don't want to create perfection. I'm all about destroying perfection. What are some of the processes that you go through conceptually and physically to accomplish that?
2: Well, when I first launched my career, what I found so interesting is when I learned to sew, I had a singular focus as an artist creating an exhibition. The first thing I did is I had this idea to recreate the most iconic menswear pieces that I had learned to love, that I'd been taught to wear, whether because it was a must-have essential for a, a male's wardrobe or because a certain character had worn it. And I needed to make these all out of the same kind of wrinkled, fragile Japanese paper that I painted on and built a career as a painter, making what looks like a blazer or a leather jacket all out of the same paper. And it supported this idea that image is powerful and it's potent, but it's also paper thin. And it's disposable, really, behind this facade, what's really there. That was the beginning because my process, even with that, was to create this technically beautiful piece that looked like a suit I learned to sew and could create, at least from the outside, a suit that would have looked great on Cary Grant or Fred Astaire uh, or Duke of Windsor or Gary Cooper. But I distressed it, and I bent it, and I broke it, and after I painted it, I use sandpaper and rags to remove the paint to sort of give it a story and that process has stayed with me to this day because I love taking things that are either already destroyed and finding the beauty in them or taking something new and perceived as beautiful and destroying them through a series of processes that range from sanding them tearing them anything I can do to kind of take the aura of luxury out of it um
0: Do you think that's a
1: product of our times? Is it kind of dystopic? Is it about looking at the past or is it about looking to the future, which may be kind of bleak? Is it about, or is it just about the beauty of life and experience that you see even in a cloth?
2: I think it's all of those things. And that's beautifully said. Uh, For me, it started at a time when I think my personal relationship to that aesthetic and to fashion was, I'm not saying that it was ahead of its time, but I think it was slightly before the curve because it was so personal to me. So as an artist, I had no choice but to explore my relationship to clothing and specifically the clothing that I was taught to wear, which meant the lifestyle that I was taught to aspire to, imagery, clothing. And so it was a real need for me to physically destroy that. It was therapeutic. It was therapeutic. I... My first collection, I had pieces that I called Destroying Cary Grant. Because I wasn't saying that I don't love Cary Grant or that he's not the Hall of Fame, sartorial, you know, icon of all time. The first thing I started doing was really playing with tailored but unconstructed. I certainly wasn't the first to do that, but I wasn't looking to do it out of soft canvases and rumpled fabrics at first. It was about, can I make a soft Tailored, impeccably cut but unconstructed chalk-stripe jacket or tweed jacket, things that were normally known for their structure and for their tailoring. I love vintage military. Clothing, fabrics. I grew up looking, searching, scanning, shopping at thrift stores, Canal Street, Army, Navy, when I was five, six, seven years old and learned to appreciate that from a style and a meaning standpoint. Not much more than that, though, and I started to really emotionally question this universal idea that we all want to look and feel like a soldier without actually being one. What made me angry was that I started to feel like, wait, we all want the glory without the work. And yet, simultaneously, I was tapping into something else, so almost out of anger and the need to explore it, things kind of turned a corner for me when I made a three-piece suit out of destroyed duffel bags. Vintage U.S. Army duffel bags. And this, I know, was not happening at the time, not in the way that I was doing it. This was
1: around 2009. Yes. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago.
2: Yeah. The first piece I had was actually in my art exhibition, then became the staple of my first collections in 2011 and 12. And so the idea was, I'm going to take not a cool faded Army shirt or a, a leather bomber jacket, but the most utilitarian forgotten possession of a soldier, a destroyed duffel bag. that that carries their possessions and their life with them from base to base that is not glorified, that is not celebrated at the time. And what started for me around 2008 as a personal, not rebellion, but a personal questioning of the perception of myself and as a part of my family, I could feel happening where all of a sudden people wanted something different. Not that people don't want luxury, not that people don't want to make money, not that people don't want to enjoy their life, but I could really, I started to see what I called a shift, even in what, there was a new premium on creativity, on individuality, on expression. Suddenly, the democratization of expression has allowed people to feel like, you literally, now cut to 2019, 2020, it is the norm to establish your own voice and You have to express yourself. The pressure is on now to figure out what your voice is, what your creative form of expression is. That is who we are right now. Mm. People refuse to be one of a, of a herd.
1: Mm. I think we see that a lot. uh, For example, with young musicians, you know, we're in Hollywood and and obviously you've worked with, you know, you worked with Kanye West Mm -hmm. and I think now even more archive fashion is more important. That look, that singular look. That, mm-hmm. that self-created entity yeah. um, or character um, its more and more important. What was it like to work with someone like Kanye, for example, who's kind of crossing over different areas? You know, mm-hmm. you cross over art and fashion and character studies,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: cinematic, wardrobing even. Yeah, absolutely. How was it working with him? Mm-hmm. That was about 2015.
2: Yeah. So interestingly with him, I didn't work with him so much directly. Mm -hmm. Um, What I loved about my perception of him creating some pieces for him is I think any great artist has to have a tremendous clarity of vision. Whether you're a film director, whether you're a musician, when you see it in the documentary about my uncle right now, it's like the specificity and then the, the unwavering confidence in an idea Whether everyone agrees with you or everyone disagrees with you, your inner sense of, that's right for me right now, is something that I know he had, still has. I think every great artist has a moment where, not that it's about the emperor's new clothes, but I think to be that great, you have to also fail greatly. You have to dare to fail greatly. um, Or or be misunderstood. Or be misunderstood, or just Mm -hmm. be, it doesn't always work. I think he is a genius. I think that he is a tremendous student of everything around him. And um, what I love what he does, which is something that I strive to do as a creator, is you take in what's around you, you take the world in, you take your own thoughts, and you have to somehow find a way, if this is what you do, we have to put it in our blender, our artistic blender, and try to process, well, what does it mean right now? What does it mean right now? What does it mean to me? Can I put it back out there in some way? that says something personal to me that I hope strikes a chord with everyone out there, because that, to me, is a successful artistic endeavor. When someone goes, oh, I know that feeling. I I don't know why, but I get it. Oh, my God, that jacket he's wearing right now, I get it, because my dad had a tweed jacket like that, but I always wanted to wear my jean jacket. But, oh, my God, he's put the two of those things together. It's crazy, it's weird, but I like it, and it hits me emotionally.
1: How did Greg Lauren dress before he created Greg Lauren,
2: the brand? (laughs) So not too differently from how I dress now, except that I was always the greatest ambassador for the world of Ralph Lauren. But when I say that, what a lot of people don't understand, and I don't know if they ever will, is that one of my biggest problems being part of that world from the inside is that I was always trying to explain to people, you don't get it, it's not actually that. It's not actually about everybody wearing a short sleeve polo shirt under an Oxford. It's not just about the crests, that's part of it. But I was a student of the stories. I would sit with my dad, whom my dad was head of men's design.
1: For 45 years.
2: He's still walking around there now. So he has a different role right now because time goes on. But when I would sit with my dad, who in many ways was Ralph's alter ego, in other words, they shared the same dreams, they shared the same heroes, the same sensibilities. And I would say that at a very young age though, I did start experimenting within within the rules and the boundaries of the clothing I had. To be honest, before I launched my career, I started experimenting on the clothes I had. So my favorite jacket before I launched my career was a black and cream herringbone jacket, a polo version that I snipped and threw in the washing machine multiple times and snipped again and whipped stitched clothes to create this feeling of not just something that was artificially worn, but I was also living a life as an artist. So my aesthetic was always very true to my life. So part of my personal style developed because I'd be painting at the studio in some, whether it was a pair of Adidas or Nike track pants with paint splatter all over them, or a pair of drawstring pants that I decided I'm gonna let these get really messy. I was like, oh my God, I gotta go meet whether it was a family member or my parents for dinner, and and I'd run out and grab a jacket. And next thing you know, I'm walking into a a fairly nice restaurant where on the upper half, I have a tweed jacket on or a pinstripe jacket that I happen to have with me. And underneath, I'm kind of holding the jacket closed because I have a paint splattered t-shirt. It was probably the most defining time or seminal moment in my style development because I was marrying what I knew with who I was, with my real life.
1: Worlds collided. Yeah. Live Connected is a theme this
2: season for Joyce,
1: and so it's like creating meaning and emotion and exchanges that transcend an object. Mm -hmm. How do you accomplish that?
2: I think for me, all of my careers that have gotten me to where I am now, some people know, some people don't know, I spent some time as an actor. Um, Everything that I've done has taught me something and has informed how I approach the next phase, and... You know, a big thing in acting is if you're sitting in front of the camera and you don't know, you don't have a line, it's sort of a fundamental, if you have something going on on the inside, whatever that point of view is, the camera, certainly in film acting, will pick that up. So what I've always said, whether whether drawing, whether painting, music, obviously in things like dance, and for me in clothing, everything we make, everything I think of, and then with my team, work so hard to express and create, has a story, has a point of view, it has a reason. And, and it goes back to something you said earlier. I think too many designers right now have fallen into the trap of making things because, okay, so now they've seen this aesthetic, right? I have never put two different fabrics together because I thought, let me put two fabrics together. It came from a personal story of, man that's interesting that one day I was taught and I think I kind of lived like, one day I feel like I want to wear a suit because I feel like I want to be like this guy. The next day I will feel like I need to feel tough or like I earned something. So I'm wearing a a vintage denim work jacket from the 1920s. It almost doesn't make sense. So for me, combining those kind of fabrics, there's really an emotional intention behind it. And so I think I strive to put some emotion and point of view in everything we make. And so my favorite compliment is when someone feels something from a piece of clothing that we've made, even if they don't know why. Hi, I'm Greg Lauren, and you're listening to Live Curiously by Joyce.
0: As you can tell, Greg Lauren's conversations are as richly woven with ideas and stories as his clothes. It's almost as if those vintage fabrics whisper something to him to keep him motivated and he works with conviction but with a mission and passion. But sometimes there's one aha moment that puts things into perspective.
2: I think on some level somewhere somehow the way the universe worked out and I don't know I don't know yet exactly why this happened but my dad said to me when I was 17 or 18 and absolutely loving the world that I had seen and not not the lifestyle the creativity the art The I loved the creativity that I would be exposed to when I would visit my dad at the office because it spoke to me and it was painful and almost shattering when he said Greg do your own thing I was like what do you mean I thought this is what I was born to do and at the time I was young enough to rebound very quickly and Convince myself, okay, well, I love all things creative. I'm going to college, I'll figure it out. I started acting, I was always drawing. So the creativity was always full throttle, but it always came back to creating character stories. And I was always more, I was always comfortable in front of the camera, but I enjoyed creating the characters, producing projects rather than just being in them. Mm-hmm. And, and the truth is when I, I had dinner with Ralph right before my collection was going to be launching at Varney's, I didn't quite share that much, but I said, you know, I always wondered why you guys never asked me to join the company. And and it wasn't something that we really got too deeply in at that moment. It was sort of confusing. I think that in American culture, unlike European cultures where generations are brought in early on, I think when you are someone and you've created something, you don't even want to look past or look to a time where you have to think about the next generation. You're too in it. You know, I said to him, I have never been able to let go of my love for making clothing and fashion and what I grew up around and what you and my dad taught me. And said, you know, I started making pieces, one-of-a-kind pieces that people really fell in love with, and that's grown, and now there are a bunch of stores that want to carry it. And I said, so I just want to let you know I'm, I'm launching a collection. And I think that was a moment, a very powerful moment, where I don't know what mythological or literary hero's journey thing that this would apply to, but he didn't say, well, wait, why don't you come do it with me? He actually said something which was very empowering, and I may not have wanted to hear it that way, but he said, okay, well, you know what, Greg, I think you have a a real voice. And I think you have a real, you have style, you really have something to say. I think you got to do it. So that was pretty much my cue to fly with it. I wasn't looking for permission or a blessing. I think it was my way of saying I'm doing this. Just letting you know and making sure and
1: Do you think it was about because, you know, your dad and your uncle were self-made men? Mm-hmm. Do you think they expected that of you or they were trying to allow for you to find
2: yourself? I think that specifically speaking for my dad, like I said, when you are the head of a when you are the company. I think that you are only thinking about where you're going, but you're not looking past or looking at a moment of, ooh, when is this going to end? I think it's just you're too in it. I think my dad, who is an amazing man who had a very unique role. So my dad shared every nuance and creative thing with Ralph, but maybe wasn't didn't have the personality to create his own company, was the perfect person compliment to Ralph because my dad then spent the next 48, 50 years protecting Ralph and the ideology and the story and the mission and the vision that was uniquely Ralph. To take on that role means you also are in a way putting yourself behind the man. So I think for my father, I think he was trying to protect me. I think he believed so much in me and didn't know how to communicate it, but it was was kind of saying, I chose to do this. I have given myself to Ralph in this world and I'm giving my creativity and my talent to helping build this. I think he couldn't see me doing the same thing because when you are in something like that, you are, in a sense, giving up your own identity.
1: Yeah, and you're so much of a free spirit. And so genuine, it seems like mm-hmm. and you react to things and you're moved by things. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what you put into uh, your kind of the opposite of corporate. Or <laughs> Right,
2: right. <laughs> I think he was really, I think, trying to protect me. And I've often written on little pieces of my clothing, ow, you saved me, but it still hurt. In retrospect, I think it was the best thing and greatest thing that ever happened to me because I was able to spend all these years really discovering who I am and... And even if it was nothing more than as a human being individuating and finding my own voice, which is very hard to do in this world Mm -hmm. and very hard to do with when you have certain characters around you who are larger than life. I think that we are learning and trying until the last day we're here, but I think I've come a long way and definitely feel like I've it was the right thing.
1: Well, yeah, you formed a company. Yeah. You're, you're moving to bigger digs yeah. <laughs> downtown. So, yes. Like that being said, though, like, you know, you've obviously reflected a lot on it, and I'm sure you've done a lot mm-hmm. of work on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, and come out of it in a very healthy way, and you're building something. Mm-hmm. And so, what would you say is your creative vision?
2: So, artistically, my mission statement has always been to create art in any medium, which affects people, which changes how they see the world around us, and hopefully just makes them think a little bit differently. So I feel like if I've turned the dial just a little bit, then I've contributed to something. Specifically, the clothing that I started making when I launched my collection, my brand, it wasn't even a collection or a brand, it was, I have to make this stuff. So that might sound cliched or I say, I had to make it, what I was making needed to be expressed. The fact that it came along at the right time, the right place, made by the right person being me, and people received it and found it interesting, just so happened to support this idea that then let me believe and have a vision of building a company. The vision now has changed more to, wow, I really think that my vision speaks to more people than I realized. More people who now are ready for the change and have come around to it. So whether that means guys who five years ago never in a million years thought that they could wear something from my collection or every age seems to respond to it. So I am on a mission now to build a true company that supports the creative voice, the brand identity, the artisanal approach, which is who I am but make a quality product that is more accessible. And in addition to that, I believe I've become more clear about how to do what I've been doing from the beginning, but even from a sustainability standpoint, it's a huge part of what we've always done without any fanfare, without announcing it. I've repurposed everything from fabric to image and not because I was trying to be green, but maybe I backed into it, but I recognized that along the way and I've always had a kind of no scrap goes unused policy around here now that's become an initiative and a big part of moving forward a big part of the my new collection is is a story revolving around garments made entirely from the scraps from the cuttings of garments already made and scraps we've collected for six seven years and not thrown away are now being turned into product and so it's different than using repurposed fabrics it literally is the cutting wastage that could have just ended up in a landfill somewhere so it's a huge part of what Mm -hmm. I believe in Mm
1: -mm. when was the last time you discovered a whole new perspective about your life or work is it kind of right now as you're starting to move and starting to go through Hmm. things
2: wow that's a great question I would say if the first shift was right around the whole moment of the art exhibition and the change and me launching this it was because I finally was ready to look at not only my life, but really look at and examine how I felt either the perception or who I was, that whole overlapping combination of who I really was, who I wanted to be, what did I need to explore, how do people see me because of some misconception about me or my family or my name or something. So that was a very liberating way to to kind of say, wait a minute, I'm going to tear it apart. Interestingly... I started to realize I don't need to fight so much anymore. It's not about suffering or destroying something for it to be relevant. It's how do we take all that, take that energy, that anger, that fuel that we've already been using, and now it's about what's next. What's the message I want to say, not what's the message I'm trying to rebel against. What do I actually want to say? What do I want to put into the world? And I I realized I can do that, and that my clothing and the platform that it's given me allows me to actually say something. So that's exciting to me.
1: Yeah. I, I noticed that there seem to be more and more kind of collaborations happening, uh-huh. right? And so that to me really said, okay, this is um, almost like your iconic references are these older companies mm-hmm. that are military focused that are now asking you to create product with them. or Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like things are in sync.
2: Well, what it seems like, if it's interesting and I feel like I can say something or bring something to the process, then it's exciting to me. But it seems to be that anyone who has either become iconic or classic, or they feel they are some form of a heritage brand in need of a shakeup, they say, Greg, you want to do something with you. Like, deconstruct and reconstruct us. And I love it. It's not always easy. I try to do my best to find the DNA my own DNA and marry it to someone else's DNA and usually it's best when they let me do my thing Mm.
1: we talked briefly earlier about Japan and you collaborated with Mastermind Mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting the Lauren family Mm -hmm. legacy is rooted in exploring Americana and I think Japanese fashion has explored also from a very different point of view uh, Americana and I'm wondering what was that collaboration like and how do you view that alternative take Mm -hmm. on
2: Americana Um, so the Mastermind collaboration was exciting because it was so different, and actually in many ways not what you'd expect, or if someone isn't, doesn't know the legacy of Mastermind or the, the history, it couldn't be more different than what I do, Mastermind. But yet what I loved about it and what I thought was interesting and kind of a unique mix is that Mastermind is, if not the original, certainly one of the original Japanese streetwear brands. And what I liked was that it wasn't a Japanese company that, in my opinion, has explored, adopted, appropriated vintage Americana. So that, to me, is what I've already seen a little bit too much in the world of vintage and which strikes a little too close to my own background and, and the world of Ralph Lauren with Double RL and the vintage world. And I spent many years wandering around that vintage world and, and running into all the same people that were buying and shopping. It's a strange little incestuous world. What was exciting is they gave me only archival, one or two pieces each of their archival collection. And they said, here you go. It even appealed to a different mission of mine, which is I, the challenge became, I'm only going to make enough product that I can make from these pieces they've given me. And that meant If I could take two cashmere sweaters that they gave me and try to spread it out and turn that into three cashmere patchwork kimonos, that's what I'm doing. If that very signature mastermind bomber jacket, that's becoming two pairs of pants in my world. And so it was about repurposing, deconstructing, sustainability, futuristic in that way, because I love the idea of being at some point when, what are we going to do when you can only make anything out of what's around you? I love that idea. So the dystopian world that you speak of and that you mentioned early in our conversation appeals to me not just in the classic movie sense, but I always love the idea of, okay, let's go the other direction. I do find it interesting in general, internationally, because I've now done collaborations with French, Japanese, Italian companies, and I do find it fascinating the way different cultures look at Americana and become obsessed with it and what that looks like to them. I think it's interesting that I end up working with companies like that and in some way bring, I'm a product of the original appropriation. To me, it's all part of one appropriation soup. And I laugh and I find it ironic and you have to. So when I see a brand or a designer or an artist reinterpreting and appropriating what actually was already an appropriation and then coming to me to go further with it, to me that's a beautiful vicious, it's, a, it's a beautiful, vicious artistic cycle that we have to be able to laugh at because mm. it is what it is.
1: Some of the characters that populate your movies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. your sartorial films are there are surfers, they're kind of survivalists, there are um, you know military commando guys out of these almost kind of poems that you write to these archetypes, what part of those do you actually participate in? Are you a big outdoors guy? Are you, are you into the ocean or is it all just this dreamy ideal?
2: Well, when I think about the irony and self-awareness, I am absolutely the first person to turn that microscope on myself. And what I can say is what has changed is I don't surf. I love the outdoors. I love being nomadic. I love being artistic. I love wandering I love a true bohemian artistic lifestyle. I respond to all of those things. I think the difference is, I used to say that I have owned all kinds of beautiful motorcycle jackets. To this day, I've never been on a motorcycle. So I can admit, and I'm happy to admit, that my worlds are also fantasy worlds. But what the difference is, instead of a kind of lifestyle or character that I want to pretend to be, or want to act like the dial shifted for me it's more about a life that i wonder i try to imagine could i could i be that surfer could i survive alone in the wilderness these are things that i think about that i think all people think about i'm interested in movies characters and things that are about oh my god could i do that the human spirit being tested could i do that oh my god would i be able to make it through that the reason we like a movie like the revenant is would i be able to do that, and so
1: he would definitely wear your clothes, <laughs> right?
2: absolutely. And
1: how about space? Does that interest you?
2: It does, in the same way, but again, it's an interesting thing. What I'm amazed at when I watch Star Wars and what I love in Star Wars and Aliens and the best, the most beautifully art directed movies that take place in the future or in space. I love that. So, what I love is I love the idea of trying to exist somewhere between the past and the future, not. But not the present, meaning I love the tension between something that is vintage and futuristic. Haven't gotten there yet, but I'm obsessed with, and I don't think I've found the aesthetic, but I'm always striving to figure out what does vintage look like in the future? And I don't just mean like, oh, in 2040, they're going to wear something from 2020. It's just, it's more like, what does what we have come to know and love about the vintage aesthetic, what will that look like? in 2070. Right. What does what will new metals and new fibers and new things look like when they get dirty, when they get scuffed, when they get lived in?
1: Okay, rendezvous in 20 years.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Love that.
0: Greg's immediate future is moving into a large new space in downtown LA. His artful approach has paid off. It's built a business. Greg Lauren's key to living connected, allowing himself to be vulnerable. His thoughts about emotions come from a willingness to go deep. As he says himself, creating a self-awareness that is authentic and that he can be accountable for. There's no going through the motions here. His storytelling is a physical process taking what's new and perceived as beautiful, sanding them, tearing them, and removing the aura of luxury, recreating iconic menswear with physical wounds and sartorial wounds. But no longer is he rebelling against his past. He's confidently building his future with one scrap of fabric at a time. Thank you for listening to Live Curiously by Joyce. I hope you're enjoying our Season 2 series, Live Connected.